Well, my mom is here this morning, right there in the back. That's my mom. And uh, she would tell you, along with everyone else in my family, that when I was a kid, probably the number one thing that I wanted to be when I grew up was a spy. I would spend days pretending to be a spy and dressing up as a spy, which looking back showed I had a lot to learn about being a spy because if you dress up as a spy, then you're giving yourself away that you are a spy because you look like a spy and spies should look like everybody else and blend in. I had a lot to learn and I had a long journey. It was all I wanted to be when I grew up. And now church... I can't withhold it anymore. I want to come clean with you because we are family here. And after this message, I will have this recording deleted. But I wanted to let you know that that dream was realized years ago. And I am living the dream now. And I can tell you that being a pastor is the best cover-up job in the world when you are a spy. Nobody suspects you can just live under the radar. So, I'll leave it up to you whether I'm telling you the truth or not. Nobody knows, because that's what it is to be a spy. Nobody really knows. The whole point is having a good cover-up and being undetected. When you're a spy, you slip in undetected and do your work from the inside. It's kind of like a parasite. Sometimes they live in our bodies and we don't even realize it. And they are slowly eating our internal resources without us realizing it. Today I want to talk to you about something that is like a spy about something that is like a parasite. It slips in, often undetected, often under the radar, doing its work on the inside and slowly eating away at our internal resources. This is the last leg in a series called Enemies of the Soul. And I believe this is one of our biggest enemies. And yet we often don't even know it. You may have heard me pray a prayer. It's one of my favorite prayers that I pray for people. You may have heard me pray it over these years. I may have prayed it over you in particular. And that is that I pray for people that they will walk in the fullness of what God has for them. In other words, in the fullness of freedom in Jesus and joy in Jesus and living the life that he has for us to the fullest extent and being the person he has made you to be in full measure, full kingdom impact. And I will tell you this morning that probably the biggest enemy of that is shame. Shame confines us. Shame eats away at our souls. Shame keeps us thinking about ourselves 
and not those around us. Shame keeps us safe and keeps us small. Shame keeps us running on that treadmill of life, desperately trying to find something that will heal us of this feeling. Shame keeps us hiding from one another, missing out on true community. Shame blocks us from fully experiencing the unconditional love of God the Father. You see, shame is one of our biggest enemies. We often don't realize it. We don't realize what a grip it has on our lives. So Dr. Brene Brown says this. She is probably the world's leading expert on the subject of shame. She's a research professor down in Houston. And she has studied this subject for over 10 years now, devoted her career to this subject. And she's a research person, so collected over a thousand pieces of data all about shame. And this is what she says based on the research. This is what a grip it has on our lives. She says this, shame is highly Highly correlated with addiction, depression, violence, aggression, bullying, suicide, and eating disorders. So when there's shame, those things are likely to show up in our lives. So I want you to know it literally sucks the life out of us. It is literally killing us from the inside out. And I know that that's deep, and sometimes we want sermons that are light and motivational and like chicken noodle soup for the soul, but this is real. For some of us, shame is just an annoying tick. It's just always there in our lives. But for others of us, it literally makes us want to die. That is what a grip it has on our lives, and it impacts all of us. We don't talk about shame because we think that we're alone in it, but everybody has it. Dr. Brene Brown also says this somewhere else. She says, after her research, she says this, this is what I can tell you about shame. It's universal. We all have it. The only people who don't experience shame have no capacity for human empathy or connection. No one wants to talk about it, and the less you talk about it, the more you have it. Then she says this, shame is an epidemic in our culture. So everybody has it, and it's on the rise. In a recent cover story in Christianity Today called The Return of Shame, it said this, shame is becoming a dominant force in the West. And another study done in America said this. Based on the research, shame is our greatest cultural fear. So that means that even more than we run from guilt, and even more than we run from fear itself, we spend our lives as Americans running from shame. And so this morning, I want to talk about shame. I want to talk about something that we don't often talk about. And I want us to see how God can help us. Because I firmly believe that He can. I firmly believe that He can. In this series on enemies of the soul, we have seen 
how God can help us to make strides forward to experience breakthroughs and victories in these various areas that eat away at our insights. And I 100% believe that that is true about shame. So we're going to look at how God can help us. And in order to do that, we're going to take it in two parts. First, I want to look at the origin of shame. Number one, the origin of shame. And then I want to look at the solution to shame. So first, the origin of shame. I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to the very beginning of the Bible. The very beginning of the Bible, we will start in Genesis chapter 2. You see, shame goes all the way back to the very beginning. We'll start in Genesis chapter 2, at the very end of the chapter. In Genesis chapter 1, God created the heavens and the earth. God created the universe. And the grand finale of that creation was humankind. And then in in chapter 2, the narrative focuses in on humankind and that, that first human community and the dynamics of their relationship. And this is how it ends. This is the final description of the human community and the way that they relate to one another. In fact, this is the last note in the story of creation. This is how it ends. Chapter 2, verse 25. Let me get there myself. It says this. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That's the final note that we're left on in the narrative about creation, in the creation story. And what does this mean? It's not just talking about a sexual relationship. It's talking about in the totality of their relationship, in the way that they related to one another, they were fully known to one another. And they felt no ounce of shame about it. In other words, they felt full freedom in being exactly who God made them to be. They were not second-guessing themselves, but they were fully known and fully seen to one another, and there was zero shame. That's how the narrative ends. But then chapter 3 begins. Chapter 3 is a famous chapter in the Bible. It records the fall of humanity and sin entering the picture. So in the very next verse, a lot of us know the story. A a serpent slithers into the Garden of Eden. He's the embodiment of Satan himself. He tempts Eve who eats the forbidden fruit right along with her husband. Sin enters the picture. And look at the very first outcome that happens. Right after it talks about sin entering the picture, look at chapter 3, verse 7. It says this. Then the eyes of both were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So what happened? All of a sudden, they were not okay with being fully known to one another. So what did they do? They tried to hide from one another. They no longer felt freedom to be who they were made to be. All of a sudden, they wanted to hide. And then what, and then what happened next? Right in the next verse, 
verse 8. It says this, and then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. It seems like this is something that happened regularly in the, in, in the Garden of Eden. It's like a rhythm that they lived by. Only this day it was different. This day, what did they do? And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees. They tried to hide from him. Why? Well, in, in verse 9, the Lord calls out to the man. He says, where are you? And look at what the man says in, in verse 10. He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid. Why was he afraid? Because I was naked and so I hid myself. Do you see this theme? Hiding, hiding, hiding. It's a complete reversal of what we saw at the end of the creation story. At the end of the creation story, they were naked and unashamed. And now all of a sudden, they are naked and hiding. So that is what shame is. It is that impulse to hide. It is not being okay with being fully known and fully seen by one another. It is being not okay in who God made us to be. So this is where I want to stop and unpack a definition of shame a little bit more for us. Because shame is a nuanced topic in Scripture. This is where shame entered the picture. And what it shows us is that very, very basically, shame tells us that there's a problem. That feeling that we need to hide alerts us that there is a problem. And in some instances, that is a good thing. So for Adam and Eve, as devastating as this picture is, it was at least partially good. Because it told them that there was a problem. They had ruptured their relationship with one another and with God, and that needed to be dealt with. It alerted them to the fact that there is a problem, And that's why sometimes when you're reading through Scripture, you'll see that it talks about shame in a positive light. Because shame tells us that there's a problem when there's sin that needs to be dealt with. But that is the extent to which shame can be a good thing. Let me say this. Do not feel shame over confessed sin. Because confessed sin has been dealt with. Confessed sin, repented of sin, where you said, God, I'm sorry and help me to make this right if I've also offended anybody else. That kind of sin has been dealt with. The only time shame is good is when it alerts us to the fact that there is undealt with sin in our lives. But you see, it doesn't stop there. Because in our fallen world, shame has spread in twisted ways. So we no longer feel shame over our un, undealt with sin. Now we feel shame for other reasons. The second reason is that we can feel shame over other people's sin against us. It's like they can deposit shame into our souls with the way that they sin against us. So maybe with their words, and especially in our younger and more formative years, we can experience shame for the rest of our lives over something someone said to us or maybe said to us repeatedly. Words that they spoke over our lives like you won't amount to anything or you are not enough. 
or you are not beautiful or some sort of ugly word or racial slur. That is that person's sin. And yet it deposits shame in our souls. And it's more than words, too. It's the way others have treated us in cases of abuse. That is that person's horrendous shame, sin. And yet it passes shame on to us. That's the second way that we experience shame. And the third way is just an overall sense that we live with. So it's three O's, our own sin that is undealt with, others' sin against us, and three, an overall sense that we just live with. It just resides in our souls. And we can't even really trace back to a one particular cause, like something someone said to us or did to us. It is just in our souls. And that is what most of us live with. Because shame impacts everybody. It is this persistent sense inside of us that we are less than. It is the fact that I am not my idealized version of myself. I am less than. That's shame. And so it makes us feel unworthy. And I'm not talking about unworthy in the sense of salvation. Of course, we are all unworthy to stand before God. But I'm talking about being unworthy on this horizontal plane. I am unworthy of relationship. I am unworthy of life on earth. I am unworthy of others. Or related to that, unlovable. Shame says I am unworthy and unlovable on this horizontal plane. It says, the voice of shame says... If you truly knew me, if I was fully known to you, you would not love me and you would reject me. That's the lie that shame speaks into our lives. And so that's why we feel that need to hide. We hide behind all sorts of things that suck the life out of us. There's body shame. And so we spend our lives worried about how we look. There's something called performance shame. So we spend our lives worried about how we are doing. Shame tells us, don't let them see you. Don't let them see you. Let them see your achievements. Don't let them see you. Let them see this false persona of being tough that you have built. Don't let them see you. Let them see your gym bod. And I'm all for exercising. But shame forces us to slave away in the gym and punish ourselves. Don't let them see you. That's what shame says. Sometimes we're so hiding from one another that we are actually hiding from ourselves and not realizing what a trap we have been living in, in shame. That's what shame is. And that's how it entered the picture. It is that feeling that we need to hide. So what is the solution to shame? The solution to shame, I believe 
is well laid out in Colossians chapter 3. So I want to invite you to turn there. Colossians chapter 3. Again, Colossians chapter 3 is one of those chapters that does not explicitly use the word shame. And yet the truth laid out in it, I believe, empties shame of its power and turns shame on its head. Why? Because it shows us two things. Two things that we need in our battle against shame. Number one, our identity in Jesus. And number two, the community of Jesus. So, number one, our identity in Jesus. And this is found in verses 11 and 12. I'll start with verse 11. It says this. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. The word here refers back to verse 10, where it talks about our new self. And so that really means our new identity that we receive when we place our faith in Jesus Christ. It says, in that new identity, there is not all these secondary things that we look to define ourselves. And then it lists a whole, a whole list of, of secondary ways that we seek to define ourselves. It says, no, it is Christ who is all and in all. That is your identity. And so for me, that means that fundamentally, I am not, for example, Carrie the preacher. I am not Carrie the pastor. I am not Carrie the achiever or whatever. Whatever secondary way we seek to define ourselves. I am a man in Christ. You see, because all those secondary ways that we seek to identify ourselves, those are ways that we're trying to heal ourselves of shame. Those are ways that we're trying to hide and say, this is who I am. This is who I am. Don't see me. And yet, what happens when those things fall through? What happens when the achievement falls through or when the title falls through? What happens on the days when I preach a bad sermon? If I'm Carrie the preacher, then oh, the shame. I was thinking about Andrew Luck this week. Andrew Luck is the, the former quarterback for the Indianapolis Colts. And a, a week ago, he announced that he was retiring. And he got booed off the field. Like, that's the end of his career. Man, if he defined himself as Andrew the quarterback, what does that do to somebody? The shame. We are not all these secondary ways that we seek to define ourselves. When we receive... New life in Jesus. That is who we are. I am in Christ. You are in Christ. And towards the beginning of the chapter, Colossians 3, 2, it says, set your mind on these things. And I remember years ago when it first occurred to me that to set your mind on something is not to do this. Touch. No, set your mind is this. Set it. Set Set your mind on these realities and leave it there. So we set our mind on who we are in Christ. We meditate on that. In fact, one of the most helpful things I've ever done, and I do it uh, every now and again, I revisit it, is to look up uh, 
verses that have the expression in Christ. You can do an online search. You can do it in, in, you know, in an online Bible. Just look up in Christ and read all that it says, all of who we are in Christ. And just let that truth sink into your soul. And I believe that as we reflect on those things and remember who we truly are, the voice of shame slowly turns into a whisper because this is who I am and this is stable and this will never change. Verse 12 goes on to describe three characteristics of our new identity. Our new identity in Christ. And I believe that these three combine to be a perfect trifecta to fight against shame. So it says this, chosen and holy and beloved. Chosen and holy and beloved. That is who we are in Christ. And that is exactly what we need to hear in our shame. Number one, in Christ, you are chosen. What does that mean? It means not rejected. It means not forsaken. And that's exactly what we need to hear because in our shame, remember, the voice of shame says, if they truly knew you, they would reject you. So hide. But what this tells us is the one who truly knows us does not reject us. We are chosen. Number two, it says that we are holy. And again, we need to hear this. Because like one author pointed out that I read, do you ever confess sin and still feel dirty? You've dealt with your sin, but you still feel dirty. That is shame. That is the voice of shame. And what can happen is it can launch us into this shame cycle. Where you sin, and because you sin, you feel dirty, even though you've dealt with it. And because you feel dirty, you keep sinning. Because we've told ourselves that that is who we are. So if that's who I am, then that's what I'll keep doing. If I'm a dirty person, then I can expect of myself dirty things. But this verse tells us, you are not dirty. Yes, Deal with the sin. Absolutely deal with the sin. But this verse tells us you are not dirty. That does not define you. That does not control your destiny. That is not who you are. You have a brand new future in front of you. Today is the first day of living a brand new life, of living clean, because that is who you are. You are clean. That is the truth about you. You are sparkling clean because the same righteousness that was true about Jesus is true about you. That's how God sees you. And some of us feel blemished. And in Christ this morning, I want to declare to you the truth in the full authority of God's word. Let me hear, let, I want you to hear me say this. You are pure. You are absolutely pure. You are radiant. 
There is no spot or speck of stain on you. In Christ, we are holy. That's who we are. We're chosen, we're holy. And number three, and I think this might even be the one that we need to hear the most, we are beloved. Because again, I I tried to read a good amount about shame in in preparing for this sermon. And and, and one thing that I read is something, this is something that we need to hear in our shame. The one who knows you best loves you most. Can you believe that? It's hard to believe. The one who knows you best loves you most. He sees you. He sees everything about you. He sees everything you've ever done. He sees everything you've ever thought and said. He has seen all the skeletons in your closet. He's seen it all. He knows you better than you know yourself. And he loves you. He totally loves you. His love for you does not change. I believe he loves the world in that way. And because of that, he sent his son for us as a gift of his love. And when we turn to him and turn away from ourselves and are living our own lives, which the Bible calls sin, we embrace that as a gift. We take it. We own it for ourselves. And it never, ever changes. It always stays the same. His love for us is always the same. So that he loves us the same, even as Christians, we need to hear this. He loves us the same on our worst days as he does on our best days. When we feel like everything is falling apart, he loves us just as much. That is unconditional love. And that's what we need. I think part of our healing from shame is allowing this truth and praying for this truth to light up in our hearts. Because sometimes we can talk about it and we can acknowledge it, yet it hasn't quite lit up in our hearts yet. And that's why in the Apostle Paul In his most famous prayer, in Ephesians chapter 3, he prays for Christians to have the power given by the Holy Spirit to more fully know the love of Christ. Christians need that. I pray that we, myself included, would more fully know how beloved we are in Christ. In Christ, we are chosen We are holy and we are beloved. That is our identity. And that is the first half of the solution to shame. Our identity in Jesus. And the second half is the community of Jesus. And that's found in the remaining verses of this passage. One author said who wrote the book called Unashamed... She says this, shame disappears in community. The most powerful way to combat shame is to be truly known and to know others truly. And of course, that comes first from our relationship with God. 
but in community, we also put flesh on it for one another. So what does a community look like where we can be that to one another? How does it look? Let's, let's look at the description that's found in this passage starting in verse 12. Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 12. It says that this kind of community is compassionate, kind, humble, meek, and patient. Compassionate, kind, humble, meek, and patient. You see, if we open up about our shame and it's unwelcome in the community, it actually makes it worse. But what happens if we are honest about our shame and what we're met with is compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience? Do you see how that kind of community is used by God to heal shame? That's the kind of community where we can be real with one another and and stop hiding. And then it goes on. And it says, bearing with one another. What does that mean? It means that I can have flaws and I can have weaknesses, which all human beings have. And if my flaws and weaknesses adversely impact you, you will not keep me at a distance. You will bear with me. And then it says, if anybody has a complaint against one another, forgiving one another. And that just acknowledges that we will We will offend one another. And yes, there's consequences to sin. But in this kind of community, there's always forgiveness. We bear with one another and forgive one another. So you don't have to be somebody in order to remain in this community, in order to be embraced by this community. Yes, there's consequences to sin, but there is forgiveness. Do you see how shame can be healed in that kind of community where we bear with one another and forgive one another. And then it goes on. It says, above all these things, put on love. Put on love. Do you see how that's more than just a feeling? That's more than just waiting for love to arise inside of us. It is a deliberate action. It is a choice to love somebody. So I think this means, part of what this means is deciding to not just be around those who we naturally love. Yes, you can be around them, but to choose to not only be around them. But as we gather together to scan the room and ask, who can I love today? Who can I deliberately love? Because that's what we're called to. And I want to challenge us with something. Over the years, when I've spoken with people, sometimes one thing that I hear is that sometimes there is a feeling that you have to be the right person in order to truly get on the inside of this church family. You have to be the right person in order to truly get on the inside of this church family. And let me be clear. It's always a two-way street. And that is not true of everybody, and that's not true all the time. But to the extent that it is true, we will have a very hard time fighting shame in this community. 
So I would say that I believe that we can put on love and deliberately love one another. And that that can define us as a community. I believe that. I believe it because I already see it. Do you see how being that kind of community can be a place where healing happens to the voice of shame? I believe that we can be that. I believe that because I believe that God is more than able to help us with it. I believe it because I already see it. I already see all these things. I already see kindness and compassion. I already see people bearing with one another and forgiving one another. I already see people putting on love. And I am confident that all the more we can be that so that people who are trapped in shame can come to this place and experience healing from shame in community. Where we can be honest about our shame. Because like the saying says, it's a bit corny, but I believe it's true. Shame is broken when it is spoken. And shame grows in hiding. So church, let's be a place where shame is broken. Let's be the community of Jesus. I'll invite the band to come forward. And I want to share with you one final charge as they come forward. The solution to shame is found in our identity in Jesus and found in the community of Jesus. And what it comes down to is being known and being loved truly. We receive that from Jesus and we receive that from one another. And so this is my final charge for you. That we would go from this place And I want to encourage you to, number one, come before God. Come before God and share with Him your shame. To bring it before Him. And ask Him to remind you of your identity in Jesus. And ask Him for the power to more fully know His love in your heart. I've got one more quote for you. It says this. Reveal your shame and he will reveal grace. Come to him out of hiding and he will come to you with healing. Run to his arms and confess and he will give you rest. So come to God with your shame. And then number two, when you're able, come before at least one other person in community and be real and share your shame. Because shame grows in hiding, but it vanishes in community, true community. The community of Jesus, the community that I see in us, the community that more and more we can become. So let's do this. Let's get healed of this undercover agent, this parasite in our souls. Can I pray for us? Oh, Father, come before you, Lord, and I thank you of all that you are able to do in our lives. And I do pray that you would break shame more and more in our lives. I pray that we would be able to walk in the fullness of all that you have for us, Lord, by your grace. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us to set our minds on who we are in Jesus. 
And I pray that you would help us to be a place, to be a community where shame is broken. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.